It was early morning, 1415, July 6th. One of the greatest preachers in church history stood trial. He had been arrested. He had been thrown in a dark dungeon near a sewer. He had been in chains. And this innocent man was marched into the local cathedral. They dressed him up in priestly robes. They put a communion cup in his hand. And in that trial, he was condemned as a heretic. He was taken outside the city to the place of execution. And there he refused to recant. He was tied to a stake with a chain around his neck. Wood, hay, and kindling was placed at his feet. The fire was lit. The flames sprang up. And this faithful martyr cried out the words of a hymn, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. His death sparked the fires of the Reformation. A century later, Martin Luther would carry that torch. But why was John Hess, Huss burned at the stake? Why did they kill him? It was because he preached that Christ was the only head of the church, that no apostle ever claimed to be the head of the church, but merely a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Catholic Church killed John Huss because he believed in the sovereign lordship of Jesus and the supremacy of the word of God. He was willing to die for his Savior who died in his place. He was a slave of Christ. Now, it's easy to think that being a slave of Christ is for the John Husses and the Martin Luthers and the William Tyndales of the world. It's easy to think that being a slave of Christ is for Peter and Paul and Jude, men willing to die for Christ, for those who are specially called and committed. What I hope you see today is it is the normal Christian life to be a slave of Christ. We recoil at the name slave. We don't like it. It's no surprise that we are repulsed. We associate the word slave with often brutal, dehumanizing institution of slaveries in the 1700s, in the 1800s in both England and America. We associate it with modern-day slavery and trafficking of those made in God's image. But if we would understand our life as Christians, if you, if you are a follower of Christ and you would understand your life as a Christian, you must understand it as being a slave of Christ. You must understand what it means to be a slave of Christ. That you would denounce the evils of human slavery while embracing the good reality of slavery to Christ. Because for the redeemed, slavery to God is the best freedom. It is freedom from sin. Today in Jude 1, what does it mean to be slaves of Christ? What does it signify? What are the implications? Last week we kicked off our verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Jude by looking at verses 1 through 4. That we would not cave in but contend for the faith, that the called are contending for Christ, that if we would not cave in, that we would not give up, we would know our identity in Christ, we would know our ministry, we would know our enemy, we would contend for the faith once for all delivered, 
We would know that Christ called us, that Christ loves us, that Christ keeps us, that we are secure in him, we are free to serve him. Well, what I want to do today is circle back and zero in on verse 1 and the phrase, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. Because slaves of Christ belong to Christ. Those Christ own serve their good master, their loving master. What does the slave of Christ do? What clues are there in the text of Jude and what indicators that would show you that you are embracing your slavehood to Christ? I want to point out to you three actions that spring from a Christian's identity. Around three words, confess, comfort, and continue. Confess, comfort, and continue. The first point along that word confess is that the called, those called by Christ, confess Christ's lordship because they love him. The called confess Christ's lordship because they love him. Look at the first phrase of verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Most letters in the Greco-Roman world back then, it, they were brief uh, in the opening. This is brief in the opening. You'd have the sender and the recipients in a greeting stated very concisely. This is that. In Acts 23, here's a typical greeting. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. But what distinguishes Jude and the other New Testament epistles from Greco-Roman letters of that time is the theological substance of their greetings. Jude drenches this in the gospel. Jude doesn't just say hello. Jude stacks the gospel in the greeting, states central themes right at the beginning. Bottom line on top, how scripture-twisting intruders had crept in unnoticed into the church. And Jude is reminding the readers that God had called them, that he had set his love upon them, that Jesus Christ would keep them until the end. He does not emphasize that Jesus was his brother, but that he is a slave of the Lord, his Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. That reads literally in the Greek, of Jesus Christ, a slave. The Greek word is doulos. He's not using the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. He is saying he is a servant of Jesus Christ, meaning he is a slave of Christ but it gets translated servant. It's of Jesus Christ. It's brought to the front of the verse for emphasis. It is of Jesus Christ he is a slave. Again, calling himself not diakonos servant, but doulos, slave. That word emphasizes bondage to another. That emphasizes belonging to another. Totally. He goes on in verse 1 and says he's writing to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Those words signify possession, strong possession. The relationship here is not one of brother to brother, but master to slave. This is 1 Corinthians 6.20. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is 1 Peter 1.19. You were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Christ owns you. And the question we must ask is, how can confessing to be a slave of Jesus Christ be a good thing? Because I realize that we have difficulty with certain words due to history. Slave is at top of list. 
Bible translation teams struggle when they come to words in the Hebrew and the Greek that refer to things that don't correspond exactly uh, to modern things. And so in the Hebrew, the, the, the word for slave is abed. In the Greek, it is doulos. Both mean slave. They should both be translated slave, but often Bible translators will pick a different word. And they can do that because there, there are several words you can choose but when you say servant, you could say, well, a servant can be paid for their, their work. But a slave is owned. A slave is at the will of their master. And slave, that word slave, that name slave, it triggers an association with the dehumanizing institution of slavery, especially in the 1700s and the 1800s in America. So modern translations of abed and doulos often choose a different word than slave. But the New Testament apostles knew exactly what slavery meant in terms of Jewish history and Roman culture. And what you must do is read Jude like the first readers of Jude would have read Jude. Understand the errors and the, the excesses of bad human slavery, but also understand the biblical pattern of good slavery to God. The Old Testament Hebrew word for slave, abed, is found over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Slavery was a part of Israel's history from its earliest days. Before Isaac was born, in Genesis 15, God reveals to Abraham that his descendants would be uncountable. But he also revealed something that many of us forget, that his people would suffer as slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And in God's providence, they came to Egypt, compelled to be slaves, they cried out to God. God miraculously, supernaturally saves them via Moses. Exodus signified slavery to God. Fully purchased, fully owned by God. Even in the Mosaic law, protection for slaves was provided. In the Old Testament times, you could become a slave voluntarily. Maybe to escape poverty or to pay off a debt. You could become a slave involuntarily, not by your choice, by birth, many slaves were born into homes of slavery. You could be captured in battle and become a slave. You could have a judicial sentence, uh, something, you do a crime and they make you a slave as a result. By the time you get to first century Rome, slavery was unquestioned. There were slaves of all ages and genders and ethnicities. One-fifth of the population were slaves, as many as 12 million at the beginning of the first century. The Roman economy depended on that for the workforce. And Rome viewed slaves as having no rights, no legal status. They were owned by someone else. Aristotle, even in the 300s BC, defined a slave as property to be bought and sold at the mercy of his owner. There were times when injustice was inflicted on some by unjust masters. But there were huge differences between Slavery in the 17 and 1800s in Britain and America and the first century. Roman slavery was not racially defined. Often you could not tell a first century slave apart from a free man by their clothes or by their work. Roman slaves had the opportunity to earn freedom, to become citizens. Roman slaves could even become masters of slaves. Slaves, if you were a slave of a good master, you would enjoy a comfortable life. If you were a slave of an important person, you would have prestige and honor and influence. Some were highly educated. 
Some were trained as specialists in professions. You could be a doctor, a teacher, a philosopher. Some would function essentially as free people. In the first century, living conditions of slaves was greatly improved. There was legal action. There was public opinion supporting better treatment of slaves. Most slaves in the first century were born in an owner's household, and they were trained for important jobs and treated accordingly. Roman society never saw slavery as ideal, but it did not carry the stigma that is associated with the 17th and 18th century slave trade. And slavery became a fitting metaphor for the Christian life. It remains so. In Israel's history, God's slave identified with those at Sinai who said, we will do everything God said. We're going to be aligned with Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. We are submitted to God's will. We are submitted to God's word. From a first century standpoint, it was the same. Slavery was a picture of a believer's relationship to Christ completely submitted to the will and the word of God under the complete authority of Christ, owned by Christ. In the Old Testament, those who were called to special service of God were identified as slaves of God. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets. In the New Testament, Peter and James and Paul, all are called slaves of Christ with no personal autonomy they embraced that identity. And so here is Jude. And he's saying, I am like any other Christian. I am honored to serve as Christ's slave. Here's a man who did not believe in him during his earthly ministry, but came to faith in Christ after the resurrection. He grew up with Jesus, but did not follow him. And Christ humbled Jude's heart. Has he humbled yours? Has your heart been humbled by Jesus? You know, all believers are described as slaves of God forever. Revelation 22 tells us there will no longer be any curse and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. For all eternity, the believer will be Christ's slave. Every believer joyfully worshiping and adoring and exalting their, their master, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are his slave. It's not that you say, I want to be his slave. You are his slave. This is your identity. Your identity is set. You were chosen by God. You were called by Christ. You were called by him and loved as his own and kept by him. You are kept by him now. Christ who set you free from sin's slavery. You need to confess that. You need to confess it in your heart. Remind yourself that Jesus set me free. Tell your household. Tell everyone in your sphere of influence. Self-identify as a slave of Christ. Embrace Christ as your king, the Lord over your life, the good master. You look at the words that are, that are for Jesus and for the Lord. You see the word kurios, Lord, Lord God. And you see it in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. You see Adonai uh, being translated kurios, a master-slave relationship, the sovereign power of God, the right to control you see Yahweh being translated kurios, the covenant name of God. 
You see Paul saying to the Corinthians, writing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. They're his slaves. Our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We confess his name. We call upon him. Peter says, you're saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ because you are his slave. There were a lot of first century believers who were slaves. There were some that were subjected to harsh treatment, unfair treatment. First Peter 2 speaks of how you should respond when that happens. But against this cultural backdrop of slavery, the New Testament speaks of slavery to sin and what an evil master sin is and, and the reign of sin in the human heart. Sin is the most dreadful master imaginable. Genesis 4-7 tells us that. And that reality was not lost on first century believers. They knew that before they knew Christ, their will was not free. They were in bondage to sin. They were owned by sin as an evil master. But Yahweh buys the believer from the slave market of sin. If you're a Christian today, it's because Yahweh bought you from the slave market of sin. This is what Paul told the Romans. When you were slaves of sin, that was your identity. You were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. You couldn't do righteousness. And there are things of which you are now ashamed. The outcome of those things is death. But he says, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, a slave of Christ, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. God at work in you to make you like Christ. And the outcome, eternal life. Slaves of Christ have eternal life. Peter says you are a chosen race. God shows you to be his slave. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, his slaves, that you may proclaim, that you may confess the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that he has saved your soul from the taskmaster of sin. So slaves of Christ, they confess that they are chosen by Christ and they are loved by Christ and they are kept by Christ. They bear his name. They identify as a follower of Christ. First century slaves often received new names from their earthly masters. We will be giving a new name from Christ. Revelation 3.12, God says, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem come, coming down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. To write on was a common expression signifying absolute possession. Make something completely one's own. This is like you taking one of, your, one of your things that you own and writing your name on it you know, with a permanent marker. This is mine, don't mess with it. We will serve the Lord as his slaves forever. His name will be on our foreheads. We'll have a new name. This doesn't happen. This confession of Christ doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart, opening your heart to the gospel, where you surrender your will in salvation when you yield yourself to God in Christ. See, the unsaved hold on to their will. They fiercely hold on to their will as the most precious thing that they own. Even a public figure like Jordan Peterson, 
He almost broke down. I was watching a video recently. He almost broke down trying to explain Christ's reality. And he admitted that he had the absolute inability and unwillingness to surrender his will to Christ. And he concludes that Jesus is too terrifying a reality to believe in. And so you have this tortured, deeply feeling, arrogant soul that fears yielding to an omnipotent God because he fears the loss of power over people, over power over their minds, much like the rich young ruler who said, I counted the cost and it's too much. He lost his soul. As a young atheist, Josh McDowell started writing evidence that demands a verdict to show that the evidence about Christ was so weak that the verdict would have to be not true. He even said this, he said, the resurrection was one of several things I knew I had to refute as an unbeliever. But as he's doing that, and he's writing this book, he's been exposed to the powerful word of God, God opens his heart to believe the gospel message, saves his soul, and what he is trying to disprove, he believes. He's unable to deny the truth, and he surrenders his will to God. Only God knows who's gonna, who he's going to save. Only God saves. So you are to confess that you belong to Christ. That you are to confess Christ. He is my Lord. It's amazing. It's really simply amazing how many opportunities come your way when you live openly as a Christian. It's startling how many opportunities come our way when we live openly as a Christian, when we self-identify as committed to Christ under the authority of his word. I hope that this is true about you. I hope that you can say, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm identifying as a follower of Jesus, and I am surrendered to his will and his word. Because you know, as you confess Christ, you cannot persuade anyone to believe. You, you can't make them believe. You couldn't make yourself believe. You have to actually use the actual word of God, the powerful inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative, conscience-binding word of God. The perfect word of God, the eternal word of God. Because, because Christians don't create or sustain Christians. We confess Christ. You don't make or keep someone part of Christ's church. The true church is comprised of all those who God has called to himself whose hearts he has opened to believe the gospel. You don't persuade anyone into the kingdom of God. You don't save anyone. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus forgives. Only God knows whom he is going to save. What do you do? You confess Christ. You preach the gospel to all. You, you use God's powerful word. You, you trust the Holy Spirit with the results. And you do so lovingly and winsomely and dependently knowing where the power lies. Jesus Christ, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, he purchased many slaves with his precious blood. I hope you are one of them. 
He is the master over which everything in the universe is under. He is the master over everything that exists in the universe. You best acknowledge him now while you have breath, while you have time, because you will one day. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confess Christ now. The called confess Christ's lordship because they love him. You love Jesus because he first loved you. You admit his ownership over you. You, you speak of him. You speak to him. You, you identify as a slave. You find your refuge in him. You, you are depending on him. Let's move to the second point. The called confess Christ's lordship because they love him. But also there's this thing about comfort here. Judah's comforting the church. The loved, the beloved, comfort Christ's church because they love him. They comfort Christ's church because they love the church. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you comfort and encourage the church when you are beloved in Christ. You comfort and love your master's family. Do you love your master's family? Can you love your master's family that gather with you on a daily and weekly basis in a local assembly, in this local assembly? Do you love one another? We, we need to remind each other of our identity. This is what Jude is doing. He says, you're a slave of Christ. You're, you're sovereignly called. You're dearly beloved. You're securely kept by Christ. Remind each other about this. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. You comfort Christ's church because you love them. The encouragement nourishes souls. You, you, you nourish souls with encouragement from the word of God. This is what Jude is doing. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, his brothers and sisters, us. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As you're traveling together with fellow slaves of Christ, you encourage and comfort one another. C.S. Lewis said, a man can't always be defending the truth. He must first feed upon it. There must be a time to feed upon the truth. You can't defend biblical truth unless you've been nourished by it. Paul said to Timothy, if you put these things before the brethren... You will be a good slave of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. You died to yourself. Say, I have been crucified with Christ. Confess Christ and then comfort the church. Say, I know it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
because you are a member of the body of Christ. You've been adopted and you have many brothers and sisters. And to love each other. Gerda Klein was a Holocaust survivor. She was an author, Medal of Freedom winner, and she recalls the moment of her liberation, May of 1945, age 21. And she says this, I stood in the doorway of that factory and I knew I was free. I saw a strange car coming down the hill with the white star of the American army on its hood. Two men in strange uniforms sat in it. We, we gathered them to be Americans. One of the men came towards me and I looked at him with incredible awe in disbelief that I was looking at someone who fought for us. Of course, I was terribly frightened. I looked at him and said, we are Jewish. There was a long pause. Then he said, so am I. It was the greatest moment of my life. He asked me to come with him and he held the door open for me. He has now been holding the door open for me for 50 years as my husband. See, those freed by Christ become his family, beloved family. In Hebrews 10, we are, we are strongly encouraged to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider, let us think deeply about it, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near the day of Christ's return. Love your rescued family. Strengthen each other with truth. Encourage the faint-hearted, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. Encourage the faint-hearted. Admonish the unruly. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Give comfort. Isn't it comforting to know that the word of God is our comfort? It is our compass as we comfort. You can thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ today. And today is a day where we show appreciation and thank God for godly men. Dads who carry burdens. Dads who care during hard times. Dads who cheer you on. Men who show you what it means to work hard and show up consistently. Father figures who give wise counsel and advice and practical help. Men who consistently support and encourage and inspire you. Today, thank them. Thank them for showing what a godly dad looks like. The kind of man and husband and father that they aspire to be. And if you're a single woman, here's what you should look for in a husband. Someone who boldly, obviously, unambiguously is a Christian. Someone who loves God's word and prayer and it shows in his choices and commitments. Someone who wants to serve God with his whole life and makes that very clear. Someone who is a leader, who initiates good, and lovingly treats you and others with respect. Someone unafraid to suffer for his faith and go against cultural norms in his witness for Christ. Someone who works hard and honestly earns a living to take care of his household. Someone who will not budge on the lordship of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture. Someone who adores Christ and cherishes you and helps you grow in Christ. John MacArthur said, believers are not merely God's hired servants. They are his slaves. Belonging to him as his possession, 
He is their owner and master, worthy of their unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience. His word is their final authority, his will their ultimate mandate. Comfort one another with the word of God. The called confess Christ's lordship because they love him, and beloved comfort Christ's church because they love them. Love your master's family. Love your family. And the last point, this word continue, continue. The kept, those who are kept in Christ, those who are kept by Christ, continue on in Christ's power because he loves them and he's empowering them. Here's Jude from the beginning because what he's about to say is, is, is hard to hear. It's hard to realize. It's hard to accept. Jude was content to continue on in Christ. Nothing could deter him. He'd seen the underbelly of unbelief. He'd wrestled with the questions. He'd become persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation could separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, his Lord. He was a slave of Christ. So he continued in Christ because Christ continued him. He kept him going, the strength of his life. That, that must be your testimony. That must be your testimony. Christ is keeping me going. I'm exhausted and Christ is keeping me going. I'm going to contentedly accept God's blessings however they're wrapped. I'm going to comply with God's gracious acts. I'm going to, I'm going to confess Christ and cling to him as a baby clings to its parent. I'm going to cling to him who loves my soul. I'm going to cling to him whom my soul loves. Because it's very clear in the Bible that obedience proves continuance. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul told the Thessalonians, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Prayed for them. May, the, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He continues you. You are God's protected property. The alarm's set. You're secure. You'll never be stolen. Jesus is keeping you. He will make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. His and yours. So submit totally to the Lordship of Christ. Like, obey Jesus Christ. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Keep his commandments. Do what is pleasing in his sight. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. No longer as a slave of corruption or slaves of your appetites. No longer turning the grace of God into licentiousness and denying Christ. Just be useful to the master, prepared for every good work by Christ, who is keeping you and continuing you. We live in this moment, and I think every moment in human history is this way. Personal freedom is prized, and slavehood is despised. And you need to make Jude 1 the preset position of your hearts. And trust God to do that for you. As a confident slave, not, not as a cowering slave, a confident slave. In the Roman Empire, Caesar's slaves had tremendous authority. They were his slaves. They represented Caesar. So if you disregarded Caesar's slave doing Caesar's work, you were disregarding Caesar. 
how much more? To be Christ's slave, representing Christ, mistreated like him, like John Huss. What an honor. Jesus rules. He's going to return as world leader. You are the slave of the sovereign ruler of the universe. You are an ambassador for Christ. Slave is an honorable name when you're connected to Christ. Dale Carnegie said, the sweetest sound in the world is a person's own name. We love to hear our name. But to the slave of Christ, the sweetest sound is the name of Jesus. He chose you. He accepted you in the beloved. He adopted you into his family. He is keeping you. You will be forever with him, with all of his. And some of you are just plain worn out. And you need rest in Christ. So much pressure in your heart to to perform, but you need to remember you are a slave of the Most High God, bought from sin, bought into the freedom, brought into the freedom of the children of God. You are a free slave of Christ, a confident one, not a cowering one. He is carrying you. He is continuing you. He is keeping you until the day you enter glory. You have free access to him. You can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So don't go along with cultural trends just to fit in. Stand alone for Christ in Scripture. You're his slave. Prove you're his. Embrace your slavehood. You'll be joyful. But you squirm away from it? You wiggle away from it? You reject it? You'll be miserable. Everyone who is truly saved and who is squirming away from slavehood to Christ is miserable. But those owned by Christ serve a loving master. You're not a rental or a lease. There is full ownership with full family rights for you. If you're a Christian today, it is not whether you choose to be a slave of Christ or not. Your identity is as a slave of Christ, one of the redeemed. Own your identity. You're fully owned. You're fully surrendered, fully kept. Slave of Christ is your identity. Don't, don't step outside of that and pretend like you're something you're not. Contend for what matters to your master. See, those who are called confess Christ's lordship because they love him. Those who are loved comfort Christ's church because they love them. Those who are kept continue on in Christ's power because he loves them. John Newton was a former slave ship captain. He was complicit in the capture and sale and mistreatment of many who were made in the image of God. And then he saw the errors of his ways and the depths of God's mercy. God opened his heart to the gospel and he was saved. He wrote over 300 hymns for the church, among them Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind. Now I see. There was a little known fact about Newton that he experienced 18th century slave trade from two vantage points. Yes, he captained a slave ship, but before that, he was first a slave for 15 months in Africa. In 1744, he was drafted into Britain's Royal Navy. He was insubordinate. He left. He deserted. He escaped the Navy in India. He boarded a merchant ship as a crew member. Not just any ship, though, a slave ship. He was 19 years old. He worked in Africa. 
It was the darkest period of his life, and he was treated as a slave. He was not a believer, and he was treated as a slave. He was scorned. He was mistreated. It, it broke his health. It broke his spirit, and he was rescued. February 1747, he, he was freed from 15 months of, of captivity. He was still not a Christian. He goes on to captain a slave ship. He experiences many of the wages of sin. And one night in a storm, he thinks he's going to die. And he cries out to God for mercy. And God saved his soul. In 1788, 34 years after leaving the slave trade, he publicly denounced it. He had deep shame over his involvement. He preached against it. He worked to stop it. He teamed up with William Wilberforce to stop slavery. It was a kingdom project. And John Newton, former slave ship captain, complicit in the sale and capture and mistreatment of many made in God's image, had a heart captured by Christ, the loving Lord, and he became his slave. And he adored Christ. He knew he was bought from the slave market of sin to be enslaved to the perfect master. On his gravestone, the epitaph reads this way, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John Newton was pardoned to preach the faith he had once tried to destroy, saved from a wicked past. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God and on the mercy and merit of Christ, you are a slave of Christ. Lord God, we praise you. We praise you, every one of us that has been captured by you, to be your free slave, to be empowered by you, kept by you. Lord, Lord you fill us with joy as we confess your lordship. We you give us joy as we are enabled to comfort your church. And you give us joy as we continue on in your power by your grace and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.